Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast, brought to you, of course, by our great friends at Alumni Hall. Guys, it's almost August. You're going to blink, and the football season is going to be here. So don't waste any more time. If you haven't already gotten taken care of, visit Alumni Hall today, either in-store, inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center here in Athens, or online at alumnihall.com to get your 2023 game day gear. All the new styles are hitting shelves, whether it's from Nike, Nike Golf, Cutter and Buck, Peter Millar, Johnny O, pick your poison. It's all hitting the shelves right now, and you want to make sure to get yours now before they all sell out. So make sure to visit Alumni Hall today because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. But all right, guys. I am your host, Tyler, and today I do want to start out just by saying thank you. Like, sincerely, guys, thank you to all of you who watched the first video on our new Glory UGA YouTube channel. And I always appreciate everything you guys do to support this podcast. I mean, just listen to the podcast, ratings, reviews, all that stuff. I appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. But I especially appreciate those of you who have watched the first video, who have liked, who have subscribed to the channel. Because uh, I did put a lot of work into that behind the scenes really all summer long. I know that sounds ridiculous. You're like, dude, it's one video. Like, how could that possibly take you all summer long? Well, the thing was, I had zero experience doing anything like that when the summer started. All I knew was that we, over the years, had gotten a lot of requests from listeners out there to do some video stuff, to get on YouTube. I mean, I, for a couple of summers, I was doing like a scheme theme month. And while I really tried to make sure that came out well like with just the, the audio format, I know a video format would certainly have helped that, and a lot of you were asking for that over the past couple of summers. So I've heard the request over the years. I've always resisted it for the reasons I laid out earlier in the week, but I had zero experience. I was literally teaching myself how to do that from scratch. So when I say it took all summer, it took all summer because I had to teach myself every little thing, man. And every time I get to the point where it's like, okay, yeah, I got this, there'd always be something else that would pop up that I had not even remotely thought about. And like, I'm sitting down, like make the video. And it's like, oh wait, what about this? And then you got to sit down and you got to figure that out and you got to do that. And then, you know, before it's all said and done, you know, you're two months into it. You're like, okay, now I finally got it. Now I can sit down and make my first video. So I know it's only one video, but that's why I appreciate you guys taking the time to watch it and subscribe because I did work pretty hard on it. And uh, yeah, it just means a lot for you guys to, to check it out. And I'm really excited about some of the plans I have for that channel over the course of the football season. So if you haven't had a chance to check it out, all good, no worries. Even if YouTube has never really been your thing, trust me, I get it. But even if you're, you've never been a YouTube guy or gal, uh, just give it a shot. I, I really think you'll enjoy it. It's gonna give me an opportunity to give you guys some new content that doesn't really 
always come through in, in an audio format. I do have some big plans for breaking down film from our games, future opponents' games, recruiting stuff, all of that stuff that, you know, the audio version of this podcast doesn't really give me a chance to do. So yeah, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be great. And thank you again to everyone who has already shown some love. I appreciate you guys more than you know. And if you haven't yet, no worries. Give it a shot. I think you'll probably enjoy it. But um, all right, as for today's show, the main thing I want to do today is dive into the Mike Bobo debate. Yes, we're going to wade into those waters because there has been far too much Mike Bobo slander going on throughout this offseason from people both outside of our program and within it. And it's gotten to the point where it's caught my attention. I mean, I've seen it all offseason, but now here we are a month or so away from the season. It's uh, it's gotten to the point where I just want to come on here and address it. And I, we talked about the hire when it first happened back in like just in January, I guess. And you know, we, we kind of put our thoughts out there, Curtis and I did, but we haven't really addressed it much at all since then. Maybe a little bit during spring practice when all the quotes are coming out saying the offense was staying the same and like the verbiage, lingo was all staying the same. And Bobo was just doing a few minor twists here and there. But outside of that, we really haven't touched on it much here. But we've gotten a lot of questions about it. And as we get closer and closer to the season, a lot of those voices, those anti-Bobo voices are getting louder and louder and louder. So I want to jump on here and address that today. That is the main topic of the show. But before we get there, our last episode on Wednesday was a recruiting heavy show. So I, I don't want to do that again today. I don't want to go like heavy on recruiting, but I do have a few updates that I want to cover here at the outset of the show that didn't make it on Wednesday's episode, either because the news hadn't broken yet or because I was just tired. I mean, I think I ended that show, recording that show was like 1.40 or something in the morning. I was just tired and I needed to end, I needed to end the show because I needed to go to bed. So I tried, to, I had to cut it a little bit short there and some things got left off. So there's a couple of quick recruiting items that I want to address and then we'll get into the Bobo talk. But the first recruiting update I want to throw out at you guys here is about a defensive lineman named L.J. McCray. We haven't talked a ton about him this offseason. We've, we've mentioned his name here or there, but he hasn't been a focus of any of our recruiting episodes, maybe on a one mailbag here or there. But L.J. McCray is a big-time defensive lineman. He's out of Daytona Beach, Florida, and he's a top 50 recruit nationally. He's an interesting prospect because some teams are recruiting him to play as an interior defensive lineman. Some are recruiting him as like a five tech, depending on if you want a base 4-3, a base 3-4. You're more even front, you're more odd front. Everybody's a little bit of everything now. It's, it's all hybridized. And it's all situational stuff. But he's a guy who's 6'6", 260. When you watch him play, he does play some interior stuff in high school. He plays some three tech. He plays some outside stuff like five tech. Really kind of plays some like 4-3 defensive end too, kind of like an edge rusher. Right now at 6'6", 260, at least that's what he's listed at. And you watch him on tape, that seems about right when you look at his frame. He is not ready to play the three-tech as an interior defensive lineman in the SEC right now, but I mean, he's going to a senior year of high school, so he's got some time to add some weight. But he needs to add a good 30-ish pounds at minimum to really be able to hold up consistently, be able to play that Jalen Carter three-tech position in our defense. I'm not saying he can't grow into that he absolutely can he's got the framing he's 6'6 six, six. I mean he's very lean for a guy that's as that's as highly recruited as he is right now as, as a defensive lineman so he's got the frame I just need to see the guy do because right now he's basically a he'd be a five tech for us so that's what he, he would be he'd be like in the role of a Trayvon Walker or Michael Williams which is okay I mean that position traditionally has not been a glamour position the Kirby Smart defense but it's in the process right now of, of evolving we are turning that into more of a premier pass rushing 
rushing role in our defense with guys like Walker and Williams. And I think that if he ultimately ended up playing that position, McCray could absolutely be that kind of guy too. We just got to see how his body develops. I mean, he's still young right now, again, going to a senior year of high school. He's still got some development to do from a physical standpoint. We'll just see where his body ends up. But the bottom line is the guy is an awesome athlete. Whether he's playing five tech, whether he's playing three tech, the guy has the goods from a physical standpoint. He's really quick off the ball, changes direction really, really well for a big guy. Just an awesome athlete. But this is not really just an evaluation thing. That's just that's my opinion on him as a player. But the update with McCray, and this is something I meant to mention on Wednesday. I can't remember if I just like forgot because I was dead tired or if I skipped over it, but it was on my list. I just skipped over it. But he is going to be in town this weekend. So the entire month of July has been a dead period in recruiting. So what that means is Teams can't host players on campus. Coaches can't go see players off campus. There's no face-to-face contact. They can call, they can text, do that kind of stuff, but no face-to-face contact, no visits of any kind. That's why June was such a busy recruiting month because the dead period was coming up immediately following June and all those guys want to fit in as many visits as they possibly could. So it was crazy, it was hectic, and that's why June has become like the biggest recruiting month on, on the recruiting calendar now. So we've been in a dead period. The dead period ends this weekend. So Teams are going to be able to host players this weekend. And most teams around the country are doing some sort of event, whether it's a cookout, AM's doing like a pool party, which is kind of a cool idea. Maybe a little weird, but it's a, it's a cool idea. In the past, we've done like a slip and slide kind of like festive carnival kind of thing. This year, we're doing a cookout, and uh, LJ McRae is going to be on campus this weekend. That's a pretty big deal. Now, it would have been a bigger deal if he had not made it to Florida on an unofficial visit, I think yesterday. I think it was Wednesday when he made the visit, and, and it's finally went to Florida. It's whatever. He's still coming to Athens, which is great for the weekend, but it's really, it seems like Georgia and Florida are the top two schools here. I mean, he's a Florida kid. We're trying to recruit him. We've had a lot of success along the defensive line. We can sell him that. We can sell the NFL, all those things. So it would have been nice if he just would have come to Georgia and would have bypassed Florida completely, but that's not how it worked out. He had to go to Florida, but he's coming here this weekend for our event, which is a good sign. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we are his like unequivocal leader right now because I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think we are in his top two based off what I've been told, based on kind of just reading the tea leaves here. And I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it again follow the visits. If the guy wasn't interested in Georgia, if we didn't have much of a chance, he would not be visiting on the one weekend that he gets to visit schools in the month of July before his season starts. This is the last chance. It's the last chance to be able to get on campus before his high school season starts and before the college football season starts. Now, of course, he can still come on campus and come to visits for games, but it's not the same. You don't get near as much attention because the coaches have to, you know, coach games and try to win games. And yeah, they give you as much attention as they can, but their focus is on winning football games. It's not the same when you come during the season as it is in the summer. That's why a lot of guys now are going to visit schools during the summer because they get like their full undivided attention. So yeah, with McCray, I think we are in his top two. And I do think it's, even though he did visit Florida earlier in the week, I do think it's a really good sign for us that he's choosing to come to Athens for his only visit during the month of July before his season starts. Now, sticking with the defensive line, I don't have a major update here. I just want to throw his name out here because he's another guy that we just haven't talked all that much about because I was really big on Justin Scott, who I think is an awesome player. He's going to Ohio State. But as great as Scott is, there are other big-time players out there that we are very much in the running for. And one of the most prominent players out there that we are very much in it with, it's a kid named Auden, I think is how you pronounce his first name, Brayland, who goes to Matterday High School, teammate of Nate Frazier, who we talked about on Wednesday. He's 6'4", 320, number 26 player overall, according to the On3 Industry Rankings, five-star prospect. This dude's legit. Now, he absolutely 
could plug and play right now as a three-tech interior defensive lineman, like the Jalen Carter role, 100%. And this dude is ready to play right now. Like, I'm dead serious. If he was on our roster right now, he as a true freshman, I believe he'd be in our rotation. I think that highly of him for a couple of reasons. Number one, he has the physicality to hold up in the trenches in the SEC, which is always my question with guys in the trenches as true freshmen. Like, can you can you hold up against grown men? Because that's what you're playing against. You're playing against grown men. I think he has the size, the strength, the physicality to do that. Number two, the guy's off the charts athletic. Maybe not quite Jalen Carter level athletic, but also who is, but not that far off. Like just maybe a notch or two below that, but he's really explosive off the ball. Plays a really good pad level, really explosive player from that position. You normally don't think of Demon Salaman being explosive. You think of like explosive players are running backs, wide receivers, those kind of guys. Well, Demons of Lyman can be explosive too. Like the way that he explodes out of his stance into the blockers, into ball carriers, that dude is freaky. And here's one more thing that stands out about him. He's really polished for a kid going into his senior year of high school. He uses his hands really, really well. I don't know if I've seen any defensive lineman in a while use the club, like the, the club technique more effectively than Braylon does. And that dude destroys people with that move. And he also bends really well because like he, he plays in tier defensive lineman for them. He also plays on the edge sometimes, like on obvious passing downs. Like they just let this guy rush the passer because he's the, like the most athletic defender they have, even though he's 320 pounds, which tells you something. And the way he can bend around the edge of, of, of offensive tackles and get to the quarterback... Uh, defensive linemen, like interior guys, usually can't do things like that, but he can. So I think he could play right now for us. And I feel pretty good about where we are with him. I think we're going to get one of those two guys. I think McCray or Braylon right now, honestly, my preference would be, would be Braylon. Cause I think that he can fit that interior defensive line role a little bit better. Or let me say it this way. I think I'm more confident in his ability Based off what I've seen on tape from both those guys, I'm more confident in his ability right now to be able to play that position. McCray absolutely can if he puts on some weight, but he's got to put on the weight, and you just don't know if he's going to do that. How does his body develop? You just don't know. I know right now that Braylon is like a plug-and-play type guy on the interior of an SEC defensive line. So those are two names to watch on the defensive front, along with Williamson Wary. We all know how good that guy is, top five prospect nationally, but he's not an interior guy. These two guys, I think, I mean, I know, again, I know Braylon can be an interior guy. I think McCray can as well. But these guys are two names to certainly watch down the stretch. We only have so many spots left. Now with Riddick decommitting, which I told you guys was going to happen, we've got 25 commits right now, which means we've got anywhere between like five to seven spots left. So spots are precious. And we're going to get another commit here in in a couple of days, actually, which I'm going to get to next. So it's going to be 26 here pretty quick. So we're going to have, what, four to six spots left. So there's only a few guys. Like we're, we're going to be very selective here. I think those two are guys that we would absolutely take. So watch those two very closely over the next couple of months, which brings me to my second update here. I mentioned this guy on Wednesday, linebacker Christopher Jones out of Fairfax, Virginia. Obviously, we know that earlier in the week, we landed the number one linebacker in the country in Justin Williams, and I waxed poetic about him on Wednesday's show. We also know, as I told you, it was going to happen. Demarcus Riddick decommitted, ended up going to Auburn. I didn't know if it was going to be Auburn until like, the day of, but it was either going to be Auburn, Alabama, one of the in-state schools. We knew that was going to happen. But the two names I told you to watch at the inside linebacker position were Christopher Jones and Chris Cole. And Christopher Jones announced today that he is going to be making his commitment on Sunday, on July 30th. This guy's a dog. It's in the bag, 100%. Book it. It's going to happen. 
And I really like this guy. Now, he does not have the upside of a guy like Justin Williams or even Chris Cole, who I think we would all, I know that we would also take. And I think that we will ultimately end up landing him as well. His upside is not quite that high, but what I told you on Wednesday, I'm going to stand by. I think physically right now of those three players, who's the best equipped to step in and play like year one? It might be Christopher Jones, at least where they are right now. Now that they have a year to grow and get stronger and develop and get bigger and all that. But Christopher Jones, from a physical standpoint at 6'2, 220, is just more physically ready to hold up in the SEC than either Justin Williams at 210 pounds or Chris Cole, who's really like 205 ish. Both those guys have off the charts athleticism and their, their ceilings are astronomical. Chris Jones, I don't think his ceiling is quite that high. But he has a really, really high floor. And I think he would be the earliest one maybe potentially see the field just based on his physical readiness right now. But he's, he's a really good player in his own right, too. It's not like he's some like scrub out there. I mean, yeah, he's a top 100 guy. I'm sorry. He's not a top 50 or a top 20 guy. But he's a really good player. He rushes the passer well. He fits against the run well. Bigger, stronger guy. More of a downhill kind of guy. He reminds me more maybe like a, a Pop Dumas Johnson. Uh, maybe a Monty Rice of years past but also a better pass rusher than either one of those guys. So I really like Christopher Jones, and I think we're all going to be very happy come Sunday night. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. All right, guys, a couple more quick recruiting notes. I don't even know if these are updates. I think most of you probably already know this. It's not like brand new breaking news. It's been known for a couple of weeks now. We just haven't directly addressed it on the show, and I've had a couple questions about them, so I'm going to put it out there. K.J. Bolden, big-time defensive back from Buford High School, now teammate of one Dylan Riola. He is set to make his commitment on August 5th. So that's next week. What day is that? Next Saturday, so a little bit more than a week from now. Their season's about to start. The Buford coaches traditionally like their players to make their decisions before the season so it's not a distraction. So that, that looks to be the case here with K.J. Bolden. Everything that I have heard from people I trust over the entire course of summer continues to lead me to believe that we're going to be the team that he ultimately ends up choosing. But this has gotten closer. 
especially as he started to take some more visits throughout the month of June. You know, Ohio State made a, a very serious run at him. Alabama's tried their hand. When you are that good and that dynamic of an athlete, the, a guy that can play both sides of the ball, you know, it's kind of just like pick where you want to play, man. Looks like he's going to play DB for us if he ultimately chooses to come to Athens. But when you're that good, all these top programs in the country are going to give give you their best shot. Like They're going to take a swing, man. They're going to take a swing, and they've given him some things to think about. But I think I come back to it. Him and Kirby have a really close relationship. He's been to Athens 16 times, guys, and Kirby always makes time to, to sit down and talk with him every time he comes to Athens. And I think that relationship is ultimately going to win out in the end. I certainly don't think it hurts to have Dylan Riola there in his ear. Now, you know, I, I always tell you, like, you know, take that for what it's worth. These guys often, they, just make, they usually just make their own decisions. But it also does not hurt to have a guy that's consistently selling you on the virtues of the University of Georgia, like right there on your team, especially when as vocal as Riola has been. So we'll know in about a week or so, but as of right now, unless things change, I feel pretty confident that K.J. Bolden is going to choose the dogs on August 5th. And one more note here before I get to the Mike Bobo stuff. I mentioned on Wednesday that I think that Glenn Schumann, as a recruiter, deserves a lot more love than that guy gets. I mean, I think people respect him as a recruiter. I just don't think people view him necessarily as like this elite recruiter nationally, the way they do like Todd Hartley because he just reels in elite tight end after elite tight end. Man, Glenn Schumann just pulls in five stars all the time, right? Like we talked about it on Wednesday. But I want to I wanna give some love to another guy on staff, and one of the newer coaches on staff, Fran Brown. So we got this guy from Rutgers. I know when a lot, when a lot of when we hired him, a lot of people were like, "What Rutgers? Like we're taking guys from Rutgers now? Like he doesn't have any ties to the Southeast? Like what are we doing?" Well, this guy has long for a long time had a reputation as a as an elite recruiter. And at this point, do we not just trust Kirby Smart when he makes a hire? Like, do you think this guy is not doing his homework? Like that's crazy. Like why why are we questioning the hires that Kirby Smart makes? I mean, there's really one bad hire I can think that he's made promoting James Coley, the offensive coordinator. But this guy has essentially hit home runs with every position coach hire. Like maybe Charlton Warren wasn't a great fit and he was only here for a short while for a cup of coffee or whatever. But like he's hitting about like 950 when it comes to his position coach hires. I mean, Trey Scott, everybody was questioning the Trey Scott hire, right? Well, how's that turned out? People were murdering Kirby for bringing back Stacey Searles. Well, how has that turned out? So I think at this point we should just trust Kirby when it comes to who he hires as position coaches. And Fran Brown has been an absolute monster on the recruiting trail. So I don't know how many of you pay attention to this or even aware they do this, but 247 Sports, they keep track of what they call their their recruiter rankings. So it's like, which position coach out there is responsible for landing the most high-profile recruits in the country? And right now, Fran Brown sits at number one on that list. Look at these names, guys. Listen to these names. Ellis Robinson IV, who is the number four player in the country, number one cornerback in the country. Justin Williams, who we talked about earlier, then we get inside linebacker, the number one inside linebacker in the country. DeMello Jones from Swainsboro, who's a top 100 player. Peyton Woodyard from St. John Bosco out in California, top 100 player. Jordan Thomas uh, out of New Jersey. There's those New Jersey ties, top 100 player. Nair Daniels out of New Jersey. Again, New Jersey ties, a top 170 player. Now, I will say the way that we recruit, the way that we go about recruiting these guys, it's not just one coach that's responsible for recruiting them. You know, your position coach obviously gets involved. We don't do like areas. Like once upon a time, there's like, okay, you're responsible for this area. You have this part of the country. You have this part of the country. That's not really how we do it now. We do it much more by position these days. But look, Kirby is not an idiot. Kirby is a pretty smart guy if you haven't figured that out. He understands that Position coaches often come and go. Like we, we do a really good job of retention within our program with, with our position coaches, but 
traditionally those guys stay, you know, what, two or three years on average and they're gone, right? They get promotions, they get somebody else offers them more money, whatever it is, they don't stick around that long for the most part. So Kirby's well aware of this. So he wants to make sure that you don't just have one coach that's like responsible for this one recruit. Because what happens if that coach leaves? So if that coach leaves, so let's say Fran Brown is recruiting Ellis Robinson. He's the only guy that Ellis Robinson talks to. Well, Fran Brown, if he leaves and Ellis is like, well, dude, that's my guy. Like maybe I'm gonna open my recruitment and go somewhere else. I have a relationship with all these other guys, these other schools. They're staying at their schools. So Kirby just tried to do some like cross pollination where he has multiple coaches build relationships with these guys. And Kirby's also very hands on himself, more so than a lot of head coaches are out there. So I don't think you can say that Fran Brown has recruited all of these players and landed all of them on his own. Other coaches have contributed absolutely. Our recruiting staff does a fantastic job beyond like the on field coaches. But he is the primary recruiter for all these guys. Again, Ellis Robinson, DB. DeMello Jones, DB. Peyton Woodyard, DB. And even though we don't really do like area recruiting the way that we used to, he still has a lot of ties to New Jersey. And obviously we use that, right? He has, I mean, the New Jersey area, New York doesn't have many big time college football players. Isaiah Wilson back in the day was like one of the only ones I can really remember in recent memory. But New Jersey does. Like New Jersey traditionally has some pretty good players coming out of that state. So it's nice to have a guy on staff that has big-time ties in that state. So a guy like Jordan Thomas, who I think is going to be an awesome player for us on the defensive line. He's an interior guy. Now you're Daniels, big old dude, right? 6'8", 360, New Jersey guy. Do we get either one of those players without Fran Brown? Maybe. You can't say definitively. But what I can tell you is he absolutely played a major role and that's letting both those guys, along with Ellis Robinson, who might be the best player in the country, one of them certainly, Justin Williams, DeMello Jones, Peyton Woodard, all those guys. So Fran Brown, I don't hear many people talk about this guy, and I just want to show him some love because this guy is doing work on the recruiting trail. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, so that was a little recruiting update for all of you recruit nicks out there who just can't get enough of all the drama. I love it too, so I'm not blaming you. I love that stuff. But now I want to transition to the main event of today's show, to something that I think is more relevant to the 2023 season. That is, man, it's rapidly sneaking up on us, guys, just around the corner. It'll be just a month away here shortly. But Mike Bobo, 
Let's go there. Let's do it. There's been a lot of slander, man. A lot of slander out there in the social media verse, even on the airwaves this offseason, all over the place. Anywhere you look, anywhere you listen, a lot of Mike Bobo slander. And look, I'm a reasonable guy. At least I think I am. I, I like to think I am. I can respect a, a healthy difference of opinion. That, that's great, right? We all have different opinions. We, we're all built differently. We all have different experiences. We all see the world in our unique ways. And that can be a beautiful thing. But saying that, I just don't get it. I don't get the Mike Bobo hate. I really don't. And I've tried, man. I really have. I've tried to understand where people are coming from. Again, I think I'm a reasonable guy. I'm trying to give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm trying to figure out where you're coming from. And I, I don't care so much about what rival fan bases and what national talking heads think about the hire and what they think about Mike Bobo. I expect them to be reactionary. I expect them to be agenda-driven. That's fine. Whatever. That's a totally different thing. But what I have a really hard time understanding is why some Georgia fans, and based on my world, and now I don't speak for the entire Georgia fan base. I don't know everybody out there, but I do run a Georgia podcast. And I do live in Athens. I, I, I live in the homeland of the University of Georgia. So I interact with a lot of Georgia people on a daily basis. And based on those interactions, again, my world, it seems like a fairly sizable minority. It's not a majority, but it's a very vocal and I think sizable minority of Georgia fans who aren't exactly uh, stoked about the Mike Bobo hire, and they kind of scoff at it. I mean, these people, like, there are people out there that that scoff at the Mike Bobo hire, and they really can't help themselves make some sort of, like, sarcastic, offhand remark whenever his name is brought up. It's like, it's, it's like almost instinctive. It's like reactionary. As soon as they hear Mike Bobo, like, oh my God, you know, Mike Bobo, I remember that call back in 2009. But again, I, I've, I've really sincerely tried to understand that mindset. I've tried to understand where people who, who feel that way, who think those things, where they're coming from. Because I know these are good people. I know these are smart people. I know some of you are people who probably believe these things. I know you guys are smart people. I know you're good dudes and good gals out there. And I know you guys know football. I know that. So I've really tried to look at it from all these different angles and really try to understand, okay, where is this Mike Bobo hate coming from? Why do people feel so strongly that this guy is not deserving of this job? And here's where I am with it. I think it's a couple of things. Now, this is just me, speculation, my opinion, could be wrong, you know, opinions or whatever. But the, here's the first thing. I go back to the old saying, right? You only get one chance to make a first impression. And I think with Mike Bobo, that really does apply. I think it really does. Because let's be honest. I mean, I, I do think a lot more highly of Mike Bobo than a lot of people out there do. I will own that. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe I'm the one that's not to eat the crow. Maybe, possibly. I don't think it'll work out that way, but yeah, I've been wrong before. I could be wrong again. But I think for a lot of people, they go back to that first impression of Mike Bobo back in 2007 when he first took over the job, the, the OC job. He'd been on staff as a quarterback coach. He was officially handed play calling duties in 2007. So 2007, eight, nine, first couple of years calling plays, there were some moments where you're like, okay, well, this guy, uh, he's still learning on the job. And, and I think that was very true. I think he was good those seasons. Yeah, I mean, 2007, I think we were, we were the best team in the country by the end of the year. But, uh, you know, 
doesn't really matter when you get blown out by Tennessee. So it was never like he was a disaster, but he was inconsistent at times. Certainly his first couple of years, because he was new to the job. He was learning how to do the job, finding his way. I think that's fair to criticize him those first couple of seasons. And I know a lot of people look at 2008 and they say, well, man, you, you know, we were preseason number one. I still, I still have that Sports Illustrated cover magazine. I still have that, you know, with Matthew Stafford, Danelle Ellerby. Who else was this? Staff? Oh, Noshawn, obviously. Noshawn, LRB, and, and Stafford. I, I mean, I know a lot of people had sky-high expectations. I did myself. I was so freaking pumped coming off 2007. You got Stafford coming back as a junior. It was our year, right? And then it didn't work out that way. It had a solid year, but not the year we were all hoping for. I know Bobo caught a lot of the flack for that because, hey, man, you got you got Matthew Stafford, the number one pick in the draft. You got Noshawn Marino. And, like, what, we, we still going to lose three games? But let's just ignore the fact that our defense was 53rd nationally in scoring defense that year. But let's put it all on Mike Bobo. I think a lot of people did that because of the perception of the talent that we had on offense that year. And obviously, we had great talent. I mean, Matthew Stafford's going to be, I think I think he's going to be an NFL Hall of Famer in the future here. I think that Super Bowl kind of sealed that deal for him. No, Sean was fantastic. I mean, we did have a lot of really good players. It was a top 30 scoring offense nationally. But you, you would think with players like that, okay, yeah, maybe we should be like top 10-ish. So I think that's maybe kind of somewhat fair. But... Regardless, even if we were top 10 nationally in scoring offense that year, again, we were in the 50s in scoring defense. We weren't going to win national title. It wasn't our offense that was the problem that year. It was our defense. But regardless, I'm getting into the weeds here. I want to pull this back to the, to the to the point here. I do think a lot of people early in Mike Bobo's career made up their minds about the guy. Their first impression was, okay, solid, good, decent, but not elite, not great. And as the old saying goes, you only get one chance to make a first impression because that first impression it oftentimes sticks. So I do think that's a big part of the Bobo distrust. I don't want to say it's Bobo hate. I would say maybe distrust, maybe uh, skepticism would be another good word there. So that's part of it, the first impression. And the second part, following the first impression, is confirmation bias. I think there's a lot of that going on here when it comes to Mike Bobo. Because after that first impression, like when you make that first impression, again, we are humans. And as humans, we often get stuck in fixed mindsets. So once you make that first impression where he was good, but maybe not great, maybe not elite, you interpret everything through that lens. And you actively discount any new evidence that comes your way that would seem to discount that initial impression that would seem to contradict that initial impression. And we do this with players all the time, guys. Like, it's not unique to Mike Bobo. I mean, Stetson Bennett is the most obvious recent example, right? I mean, follow me here. So many people, not just in the Georgia fan base, so many people around the country made up their mind about who and what Stetson Bennett was and who and what Stetson Bennett could be back in 2020. When they saw that we could not be Alabama with him or that we did not be Alabama in 2020, and they saw how poorly he played in the second half of that game, and knowing that what we have to do to get over the hump is beat Alabama, they made up their mind that he can't be the guy. That guy cannot be our quarterback because we cannot win a national championship with Stetson Bennett because we know that he cannot be Alabama because we saw that game already. Their mindset was static. It was fixed. The only problem with that is that Stetson's performance was not static. It was dynamic. That guy got better. The Stetson Bennett we saw in 2021 was not the same Stetson Bennett we saw in 2020. The Stetson Bennett we saw in 2022 was a far cry from the guy that we saw in 2020. I do think the criticism of Stetson in 2020 was, I mean, I, I do think it was kind of overkill at times, but I think a lot of it was fair. I mean, he, he was good, but not great in 2020. That is true. But he did not stay static. 
He got better. And there's so many people in the Georgia fan base that simply refuse to adjust their mindset, to adjust their opinion, to account for Stetson Bennett's improvement. They didn't want to admit they were wrong. That's really what it comes down to. They didn't want to admit they were wrong. They were stuck on that initial impression. And no matter what Stetson did, no matter what the guy did, they were never going to change that opinion. When he's out there dropping dimes, when he's out there throwing for 300 plus yards, he's out there showing up big in every big game, he's out there getting an invite to New York as a Heisman Trophy finalist, they're quiet. They're the crickets back there, not saying a word, nothing. But as soon as he makes one mistake, you better believe they're the, they're the ones that are on the front lines, pointing the finger and screaming as loud as they possibly can to remind you that they knew all along that Stetson sucked. And I think there's a lot of that happening here with Mike Bobo. I really do. I think it's very similar to the whole Stetson deal. I mean, obviously not to that degree because Stetson got so much hate. But Mike Bobo, just like Stetson, wasn't great in 2020. He was good, solid, serviceable, won some games for us, but he wasn't elite. I think you can say the same thing about Mike Bobo from like 2007 to 2010, 11-ish, maybe. I think those first you know four or five years in the job. But he didn't stay static, just like Stetson. He got better. He got better on the job. Stetson had no starting experience whatsoever at the Power 5 level. I mean, he went to Jones Community College, got some starts, whatever. But he had to learn on the job, learn on the fly. And he wasn't prepared completely right away. But he got better. The more, the more he played, the better he got, right? Gets an entire offseason to be the guy. He comes out and has a career year in 2022, goes to New York as a Heisman Trophy finalist. Well, Mike Bobo got better too, man. He got a lot better. By the time he left Georgia, you know, coaches can't get named Heisman Trophy finalists. But by the time he left Georgia... He was one of the best offensive coordinators in America, and I will stand by that. But none of that matters. A lot of people out there, no matter what Mike Bobo has done, they have refused to adjust that initial impression. What do they do? Well, they sit and they wait, right? They're really quiet in 2012, 2013, 2014, not saying anything, but in the back of their mind, they're like, yeah, he still sucks, man. I just can't say it out loud right now because the numbers are really good. We're winning games and no one's going to listen to me now. But as soon as he goes to Colorado State, goes to South Carolina, goes to Auburn, and it doesn't go, up, doesn't go so well for him, what are they doing? Oh yeah, you better believe it. They're on the front lines there, pointing that finger, screaming at the top of their lungs. I knew it all along. I knew Bobo sucked. Just like a lot of fans did after the SEC Championship game when we lost to Alabama. Stetson had a good year in 2021. Got us there. Loses to Alabama again. Haters tripping all over themselves to remind you they knew all along how much Stetson sucked. So yeah, I think that's kind of what I boiled it down to. I think a lot of people, their first impression of Bobo wasn't overly favorable. And once you have that first impression, we're humans, right? A lot of times it's difficult for us to, to alter that, right? No matter what evidence is presented to us, we have a hard time coming around. I think that's kind of happened with a lot of people inside the Georgia fan base. But I think really, if people evaluated Mike Bobo objectively, I, I think it's hard to disagree. I think by the time he left Georgia, I'll say it again, he was one of the best offensive coordinators in college football. I mean, his final year, guys, we had a top 10 offense that was statistically the best offense in Georgia history. I mean, if that's not up to your standard, then what is your standard? And that brings me to what I think is the crux of the issue for a lot of people. Our standard now is national championships. That's where we are as a program. And a lot of people in this fan base, quite simply, have very serious reservations about our ability to win a national championship with Mike Bobo as our offensive coordinator given what they think they know about him. They know, and this is true, can argue it, it's a fact, they know that he has never won a national or SEC title as an offense coordinator at Georgia. When he was here under Rick, never happened. He was part of SEC championship teams, but he wasn't as the coordinator, right? So they know that, that's true, that's fact, can't dispute that. 
but they think his entire post-Georgia career proves that he isn't good enough to ever win one. It proves that no team can win a national title or an SEC title with Mike Bobo as their offensive coordinator. And that takes me to what I really want to dive into when it comes to Mike Bobo. All the noise, all the opinions, all the caustic remarks, really all this debate should boil down to, as far as I'm concerned, is one thing. One very simple thing. Can we win a national championship with Mike Bobo? That's what it comes down to. Because again, that is our standard now. That is how this hire is going to be judged. People can say whatever they want right now during the offseason, in July, whatever. Ultimately, fair or not, that is the criteria on which the final judgment will be made. Can we win? Will we win a national title with Mike Bobo? I mean, from the moment the guy was hired, people have been comparing him to Todd Munkin because they know that Todd Munkin met their lofty standards. They know we won back-to-back national titles with Todd Munkin as our OC. They don't know that about Mike Bobo. And I guess that's fair because he hasn't done it yet. I guess it's not completely unfair there. I just happen to disagree because I absolutely believe we can win a national title with Mike Bobo as our offensive coordinator. And here's why. Here's why. Hear me out here. If you disagree, that's great. Just hear me out. Let me explain myself here. First off, I know a lot of people out there are really holding South Carolina and Auburn against Bobo. But if you're doing that, I think you're telling on yourself. Because if you're holding those two jobs against him, I think there's one of two things. Either A, you're, you are just truly ignorant of the situations that he was in there. And I'm not saying you're ignorant as a rule. I'm just saying you're ignorant of that situation. Because let, let's take both those issues, okay? Number one, South Carolina, that was COVID year, okay? COVID year, he had no time during the offseason to implement his new offense there. Had never worked with any of those guys before, right? The quarterback situation was an absolute disaster. Injuries all year long. The head coach, Will Muschamp, gets fired halfway through the season. Bobo's elevated to the interim head coach. He's still trying to call plays, but now he's like running the ship. That's not what he signed up for, right? It's a very different thing. It's a very chaotic thing. There are so many opt-outs that year for Carolina, especially once Muschamp got fired. I mean, the, the, the entire team was basically like, all right, deuces, we're out. Like, we're not doing this anymore, whatever. To hold that against him is ludicrous, in my opinion. You were just willfully ignoring context to fit an agenda. And then the next year, let's go to Auburn, okay? So he goes to Auburn the next year, and did it turn out well? No, they weren't great offensively. They also weren't a disaster. Like, so, like there's a lot of revisionist history. They want to act like all the Auburn offense was just a train wreck with him. It wasn't good, but it wasn't like the worst offense ever. I mean, they did go into LSU and beat LSU in Baton Rouge. I know LSU wasn't good that year, but that was the first time they beat LSU in Baton Rouge in 20 years. But there's context in that situation too. He goes into this job at Auburn with a head coach in Brian Harson, who he was simply butting heads with. He, Bobo had his ideas of what offense he wanted to run. Harson had his ideas. Harson didn't know Bobo. They had no connection. Harson hired Bobo because Harson's coming from the West Coast. The dude's coming from freaking Idaho. He has no connections in the SEC. He's got a recruit. My Bobo's got tons of connections in the SEC. I mean, outside of Kirby Smart, there is not a man on planet Earth more connected in the state of Georgia when it comes to high school coaches than Mike Bobo. So that's why he was brought in. But these two had no relationship. Brian Harson is famously a very abrasive guy and hard to get along with behind the scenes. There's a reason both of his coordinators left after one season. Bobo wants to run one kind of offense. Harson wants him to do something different. And that's really a tough spot for an offensive coordinator to be in. And there's also the fact behind the scenes that the Boosters are basically engineering a mutiny against Brian Harson. So that's all happening in the backdrop. 
So if you want to hold that against him, whatever, that's your prerogative. Feel free to do that. But again, I just think you're willfully ignoring context to fit an agenda. In both of those situations, the deck was clearly stacked against Mike Bobo. But whatever, those are minor details. I want to get to the core of my argument here. Because the core of my argument is that we absolutely can win a national title with Mike Bobo. Let's do a little exercise here. Can we all agree that Todd Munkin is the standard at offensive coordinator for the University of Georgia? Can we all agree on that? I think that's fair, right? The best offensive coordinator that we've had went back-to-back national titles with him. Top five offenses. Absolutely, right? He's the standard, okay? I think we can all agree on that. Well, here's the thing. Mike Bobo's run from 2012 to 2014, three-year run there, it absolutely rivals what Todd Munkin did from 2020 to 2022. Now, without the hardware, does not have the hardware. That's the difference here. But in terms of offensive production, Mike Bobo's run from 2012 to 2014, it absolutely rivals what Munkin did from 2020 to 2022, all right? And hear me out. Let me explain this, okay? So Mike Bobo scoring offense. 2012, number 15 nationally. 2013, number 20 nationally. No, 2014, number eight nationally. Munkin scoring offense, 2020. Now, COVID year, context there, right? You know, 38th nationally. 2021, ninth nationally. 2022, fourth nationally. So the run that, that Munkin had the last two seasons, national title seasons, yeah, those two seasons combined are better than any two seasons combined that Bobo had. But 2014 was a hell of a season, as we're going to get to for my Bobo here in a few minutes. Well, let's go to yards per play. That's scoring offense, right? Well, yards per play, all right? 2012, Mike Bobo, number one nationally in yards per play offensively. 2013, 13th nationally. And let's, let's also remember 2013. Let's add some more context here. You guys remember the rash of injuries we had in 2013? Basically, every player on our team, on our offense, like their arm or leg fell off, one or the other. Like, every, like everyone's dying out there. Running backs, receivers, Aaron Murray. I remember, I'll never forget that because I, I was a big Aaron Murray guy, right? Goes down with an ACL tear against Kentucky. And guys, that season, we were national title good, but we just had so many injuries. I mean, those, the LSU win, the, the uh, South, South Carolina win early that season, man, big time wins. And those were awesome games, great environments in, in, in Sanford Stadium. But uh, yeah, so many injuries, and then we end up losing to Vanderbilt. I'm mean, going never forget that game either. That one sucked. But yeah, so even though we had all those injuries offensively, we still finished top 15 nationally yards per play. Still finished 20th nationally in scoring offense with all those injuries. I mean, that speaks volumes there. And then in 2014, Mike Bobo's offense finished number seven nationally in yards per play. What about Todd Munkin? All right, similar story to scoring offense. 2020, 34th nationally. 2021, number four, 2022, number four. If you average that out, their three-year runs, I know like the outlier is Munkin in 2020, right? 34th, and that was with Stetson, it was COVID year, you know, there's almost kind of throw that out. But again, also context for Bobo in in 2013. So Bobo's three-year average, yards per play, seventh nationally. Munkin's three-year average, 14th nationally. I would still objectively give the edge to Todd Munkin, but not by that much. I mean, if you look at the production, just look at the production, guys. Yeah, Todd Munkin, you know, slightly more productive, but not by much. Bobo is right there from, from 2012 to 2014, which is when he really got his offense humming. We kind of moved away from the old Rick pro-style attack where, I mean, we're still kind of a pro-style offense, but like the I-formation stuff, we started to use more spread principles, more air raid stuff. Now, we were never an air raid offense, but some air raid principles into our offense, which a lot of teams were doing. We basically modernized our offense starting in 2012, really, with Aaron Murray, and the results spoke for themselves. 
All right, and next, let's do this. So 2014 was absolutely Mike Bobo's most productive offense, right? So let's take that offense and let's compare that to Munkin's offenses in 2021 and 2022, which were, I mean, 2022 was more productive, but they were still very similar. So 2014, Mike Bobo's offense averaged 457.8 yards per game, which was more than our offense average under Todd Munkin in 2021, 442.9 yards per game. 2022, now off the charts, 501.1 yards per game, the most in Georgia history. Yards per play, Mike Bobo, 2014, 6.79, 2021, 6.98, 2022, 7.17. So Munkin, again, has the edge there, but not by much. Scoring offense, the 2014 Georgia offense is still today the highest scoring Georgia offense in the history of the program. Not by much, but still, it is. 41.3 points per game in 2014. And I've said this many times, I'll say it again, with Hudson freaking Mason as our quarterback, okay? And then 2021, 38.6 points per game. And then last year, close to the 2014 offense, not quite there though, 41.1 points per game. Uh, in 2014, Let's go to explosiveness here. All right, so in 2014, Mike Bobo's offense averaged 4.8 plays of 20 or more yards per game, all right? 2021 averaged uh, 5.3, and 2022 averaged 6.5 plays of 20 or more yards per game. So again, Todd Munkin, a little bit of an edge there, but not like all that much. Last year, yeah, it was a pretty pretty sizable jump there, but not that much difference from 2021. Let's go to 40-plus yard plays. Now, this is where Bobo has an edge. So in 2014, we averaged 1.3 plays of 40 more yards per game in 2021 under Munkin is 1.1. And then last year, it was actually less than one play per game that we averaged over 40 plus yards. So we were more explosive in terms of what I call explosive plus plays. Again, those plays of 40 or more yards. And then uh, if you look at rushing, so we we've all, we were always better running the football. Now you can say we had better running backs, which is kind of true. Todd Gurley, Nick Chubb, Sonny Michelle, well, was kind of banged up when Bobo was there, but still he was kind of there. No Sean Moreno. But in 2014, now this was when this was Nick Chubb's freshman year, Todd Gurley, this is the year where he got, got suspended for four games or whatever and t- comes back and gets hurt again. But that season... We had 13 rushes of 40 or more yards. In 2021, we had seven. 2022, we had five. So in that one season, 2014, we had more rushing plays of 40 or more yards than Todd Munkin's 21 and 22 offenses had combined. And then finally, let's go here. Third down conversion percentage, 2014, 49%. 2021, 45%. And last season, 51%. Now, again, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Mike Bobo is a better offensive coordinator than Todd Munkin. But what I am going to sit here and tell you is that his three-year run from 2012 to 2014 was far closer to Todd Munkin's three-year run than most of Bobo haters out there want to believe. We are talking a negligible difference here. Very small margins. So what was the difference? What was the big difference here? Why did we not win national titles under Mike Bobo, but we won them under Todd Munkin when the production was very similar? It's pretty simple, guys. No help. It was defensive shortcomings. That's what it comes down to. I don't know how many of you realize this, but Mike Bobo has never had a top 15 scoring defense to match with his offense. Not one time in his career. Not as an offensive coordinator, nor as a head coach at Colorado State. Never one single time in his career has he coached an offense that has had a top 15 scoring defense to complement it. Here are the defenses that Mike Bobo had to work with. So I'm going to start in 2007 and go through his time at Colorado State. 
The, this is their scoring defense numbers, all right? So 2007, we finished 17th, then 53rd, then 73rd, then 36th, then 30th, then 19th, then 84th, then 16th, then 73rd, 76th, 74th, 114th, 96th. How many of those teams does Todd Munkin win a national championship with? I mean, serious, serious question. I know, I know Munkin's a fantastic coordinator, fantastic offensive coordinator, but how many of those teams is he going to win a national title with, with defenses like that? Maybe 2012, maybe. We were already so close there, like a play away. And it was a top 20 scoring defense. So it was by those standards of those years, pretty good. But again, let's go back to that three-year run, right? So I gave you the production of Bobo and Munkin with their best three-year runs at Georgia. Well, let's, what about the scoring defense those years? So 2012, Bobo, 19th. 2013, 84. 2014, 16. Munkin, 2020, 16th. 2021, number one, we know all-time great defense, and last year, number five. So here's my point. Here's my thing. Here's what I'm getting at. If one of you Bulldogs out there invented a time machine and we could take the entire 2021 Georgia defense, or hell, the 2022 or even the 2020 defenses for that matter, and travel back in time to September 2014, or I guess even September 2012, we absolutely unequivocally win national championships those seasons absolutely zero questions asked so do not tell me that we cannot win a national title with Mike Bobo just because it has not happened does not mean it cannot don't confuse those two things all right our offenses under Mike Bobo from 2012 to 2014 when he finally got his feet under him he figured things out and got a lot better over the years than he, than he was when he first started the job our offenses absolutely those years rivaled the offenses of Todd Munkin's three years in Athens. That's what the numbers tell you. Now, I know the argument against the numbers as well, you know, that doesn't account for th- that play, you know, in week three against uh, LSU, you know, back in, in, in 2013. It's like, okay, yeah, you know what? You can nitpick any offensive coordinator in the history of offensive coordinators. Sure, they're going to have a play here or there that wasn't great. For some reason, we just magnify those examples when it comes to Mike Bobo. I mean, Todd Munkin, as crazy was, wasn't perfect. Like he has some calls. You're like, huh? I mean, this is like we scored 16 points against Kentucky last year, guys. It's not like every game and every play and every drive that Todd Munkin was coaching our offense that it was spectacular. But we ignore that because we won national titles under him, right? We don't ignore with Bobo because we never won SEC or national title with. That's what it comes down to. But from a production standpoint, he was very, very similar his final three years in Athens to what Todd Munkin did the past three years. The difference was the defense, guys. Didn't have the help. Didn't have the other side of the ball. And let's just be real. I love Mark Rick. Love the guy dearly to this day. We also didn't have Kirby Smart run the team. We didn't have him running our program. That also factors into it, right? Wouldn't you agree? So here's what I would say. Know the task. Just know the task. When you're trying to evaluate the hire, and we'll figure it all out here in a couple months. We'll get out there on the field and things will play itself out. Either I'll be wrong, other people will be wrong, someone's eating crow, whatever, right? But when you're trying to project forward, know the task. And the task is... Can we win a national title with Mike Bobo? That's the standard. And I think if you look at the numbers and you see how closely they compare to the numbers that Todd Munkin put up, and he did that with inferior talent, and he did that in an era that predated the offensive revolution that we've seen. Guys, teams were running RPOs back then. That wasn't a part of our offense. Mike Bobo has simply proven that he can produce highly productive offenses that if you can match it with an elite defense, you can win national titles, just like we did with Todd Munkin. And you know what, guys? As long as Kirby Smart's here, we're going to have really good defenses. I would venture to say this year that Mike Bobo is going to have 
a top 15 scoring defense to work with for the very first time in his career. Are we going to win the national title this year? I don't know. We'll find out. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. We're going to give you guys all of our predictions and projections. But even if we don't win it this year, we absolutely can win one with Mike Bobo. I truly believe that based off his past production that he can now match with an elite defense to go along with it. All right, guys. And before I get out of here, last thing, because I did have a mailbag question a couple weeks ago about like, hey, what is the Mike Bobo effect going to be? And I wanted to hold that because I knew I was kind of playing an episode like this. So I want to kind of get to that here real quick. So the Mike Bobo effect, okay? What is like? What are we going to see from Mike Bobo? Like, what is he going to bring to this offense? What are some things that get me excited about Mike Bobo? Number one, he has a history of featuring his top players, okay? Whether it's a running back, like it's Todd Gurley, Nick Chubb. I mean, Todd Gurley is a freshman, goes for almost 1,400 yards. Nick Chubb is a freshman, goes for over 1,500 yards. Whether it's receivers, you know, Colorado State, he had, he had a, a string of really good receivers. I mean, he had four straight years at Colorado State featuring receivers with over 1,000 yards. So he features whatever his best player is, whether it's a whether it's a running back, whether it's a receiver, tight end maybe, like Brock Bowers, he is going to feature that guy. He's also been really productive with receivers. Our receivers have been really productive in his offenses. 13 years, he's had a receiver over 700 yards. In 13 different seasons of coaching offenses, he's had a receiver over 700 yards. And you guys know, we've had some issues with that. So I think we, I think there's a good chance in the next couple of years under Mike Bobo, if he sticks around, that we're going to have our second 1,000-yard receiver in the history of our program. I think it actually could happen this year. might be a tight end, not a receiver, but absolutely could happen this year. So that's the first thing. The second thing here is I think you're going to start to see explosiveness return more consistently to our offense. And I'm not saying our offense was not explosive under Munkin. It was. like We had some explosive plays, obviously, some very high-profile explosive plays. But Bobo's offenses those last three years were some of the most explosive offenses in the entire country, okay? I'm gonna go back to 2012, right? So Aaron Murray, who I still don't think it's enough love from Georgia fans, that's okay. In 2012, Aaron Murray averaged 15.6 yards per completion, which is the most by a Georgia quarterback since 1998, all right? Also in 2012, Aaron Murray had the second most completions of 40 yards or more behind only Nick Florence of Baylor. You remember those Baylor offenses with Art Browse, right, guys? They throw the ball over the field. Well, Aaron Murray was second in the country behind Nick Florence that year. Um, in 2012, Murray also led the country in yards per pass thrown at 10.1. I'll get this. So in 2022, give you guys some comparison. Like, what does that even mean? There was not one single quarterback in America that matched Aaron Murray's yards per pass thrown from 2012. So pretty damn good, right? And again, that was in an era before this offensive revolution swept the sport. Oh, and here's another one. So our 28 plays of 40 or more yards in 2012 were twice as many as we had in our 2021 national championship season. And that was with playing one more game in 2021. We only played 14 games in 2012. So there is good reason to believe that we're going to see even more explosiveness in our offense under Mike Bobo. And um, let's go to tight end usage here real quick. So obviously we know Brock Bowers is the best tight end in the history of college football. He's the best player of the team and he's going to have a monster year. I mean, God forbid, if he as long as he doesn't get hurt, I don't even want to put that out there in the universe. I feel dirty just saying that, knocking on wood all over the place here. But Bobo has used tight ends very effectively in his career. So I'm going to go back to, to Auburn. So a lot of people want to use Auburn against him, right? I wasn't a great year for him or whatever. Well, there's one positive that came out of that. So John Samuel Shanker, the tight end in Auburn that year, set the Auburn record for receptions and receiving yards by, by a tight end in a single season, right? That was under Mike Bobo, Okay. In six of his 10 seasons as an offensive coordinator, I'm not going to count 
Colorado State here because he was the head coach there. I guess still involved in play calling, but I'm going to go as OC because that's what he's going to do here at Georgia. In six of his 10 seasons as an offensive coordinator, Bobo has had a tight end go over 400 yards receiving. So that bodes well for us this season when you factor in that our best player on the team, our best offensive weapon is a tight end. Probably the strongest room in the team is the tight end room. So that bodes very, very well for the personnel that we have on hand. So I think you're going to see a couple different things from Bobo. I think you're going to see us run the ball more effectively. Although we ran the ball well under Munkin, just not as explosively as we as Bobo proved he could do. I think you will see him feature our best players. And I think that you'll see him find new and different ways to feed the ball to Brock Bowers and to make sure that guy is the focal point of our offense. So I'm really excited about what Bobo's going to bring to the table here. I know not everyone shares that opinion. I know that's not a universal opinion and you guys might very well disagree with me and that's okay. But I'll say it one more time. When it comes down to it, the question very simply is, can we win a national championship with Mike Bobo? Throw your emotions out. Throw your previous notions of what Mike Bobo was back in 2007, 8, 9, and 10. And think about, okay, by the time he was done here at Georgia, what did his production tell us? Well, his production told us that he could produce an offense every bit as good as the offense that Todd Munkin produced that won national championships here. So yes, we can absolutely win a national championship with Mike Bobo as our offensive coordinator. But all right, guys. That's it for today. I hope everyone has a fantastic weekend. Just one more quick reminder. Make sure to subscribe to our new YouTube channel. Watch our videos. We're going to have a new video coming out. I think it's going to be out on Sunday. If not Sunday, it'll be Monday. So make sure to be checking that one out. Like, subscribe, spread the word. You have no idea how much I appreciate that and how much that helps the podcast. Also, if you haven't given the podcast itself a rating or review wherever you listen to, whether it's on Apple Pod, Spotify, or whatever, we would also greatly appreciate that. That's a huge help to us as well. So have a great weekend, guys. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.